Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. This is part two of our special series looking at number 10 Downing Street, the building itself and the people who work there. In this episode, I speak to researcher in residence Jack Brown from King's College London, who's been looking into the history of the building and in particular the decision taken 60 years ago this month to dramatically rebuild Downing Street, which was at risk of falling down. We'll discuss the big rows behind the scenes about the cost and what it should look like afterwards, why a cup of tea nearly ground the whole thing to a halt, who who was Mr Chicken and why is the outside of the building black? Where there is discord, may we bring harmony. Where there is error, may we bring truth. It is a very exciting thing to become leader of the Conservative Party. It shall be a government rooted in strong values, the values of justice and progress and community, the values that have guided me all my political life. This will be a new government with new priorities. Her Majesty the Queen has asked me to form a new government and I have accepted. I know you're working around the clock. I know you're doing your best and I know that sometimes life can be a struggle. So Jack, we've just come through security, but we've basically got the view of Downing Street here, roughly what people from the street can see, but without gates in the way. It looks like quite a small building from the front. You can make out the, the fact it's a basic big grey box. You can almost make out the door. How much has that view changed over the years? We've changed a tremendous amount. One thing that we can see now that we walk down the, the road a little bit is how far back the house goes, which is something that I think a lot of people won't know these days. You recognise the uh, initial sort of small row of terraced houses. Uh, you recognise them from the TV. But it's joined to a much larger house at the back. Was this all built at the same time? I suppose one of the questions that always springs to mind is you've got number 10, number 11, you can see at the end of the street, number 12. But where's, where's 1 to 9? So originally, when George Downing built this uh, row of houses, it was a double row of houses, it was a cul-de-sac, and it was a uh, terrace of about 15 to 20 houses. Ever since then, one by one, they've been knocked down and replaced with various things, including this massive, very impressive foreign office building which is directly behind us and sort of is, is directly opposite the the front door where people never see that on the tv because that's where the cameras basically all are absolutely so all that's left at the moment is 10 11 and 12 uh, number nine does still exist but is not where the original number nine would have been what we can see here there's like a bow window on the Whitehall side of uh, of the number so it's, number a, it's a sort of the first bit that you come to as you walk up towards the door. Yes, and this is where it was a, a small cottage that was incorporated into the building. And that's where a guy called Mr Chicken used to live. Not much is known about Mr Chicken except for his awesome name. Let's walk up a bit so Let's we can get a proper view of this. I hadn't really noticed this paper before. I walked past it lots of times. As a political journalist, you get to come up down the street past the security cordon that lots of other people don't. So we're stood outside this strange bay window now. What is that? Or what was it? And what is it now? So originally, this, this was Mr Chicken's cottage. If you look at old photos numbered down Downing Street, there wasn't, this bit just simply wasn't there. You can see that the, the flat has been extended above it as well. So this is a kind of part of the kind of higgledy-piggledy historical nature of the building, bits being added on over time. But this is where the press office, for most of the period that I'm looking at, between uh, 1945 and 1987, this is where the, the press office was based. You're right, actually. Once you start looking at the building, you do start noticing bits which have been added on. There's a sort of... But it, I mean, it looks like quite a naff little extension uh, up there. And then even right up to the very top, there's a sort of wooden box on the top. Then you look down towards number 12. There's a lot, been lots of bits that sort of added on. Let's go back to the beginning. It was built in the 17th century, like you were saying, by George Downing. 
on essentially marshland, built reasonably cheaply, not, probably not that well. Yeah, I mean, some, some quite sort of respectable people lived here for a while when, when we had the original downing row of terraced houses, but he built them on the cheap, despite being quite pleasant houses for the time. I mean, they're quite large. You wouldn't have had particularly poor people living here, but at the same time, they were built in a very, very low quality and, and on very marshy land. I mean, the Thames, you know, was a lot wider at that point. We we're basically on what's, what's known as Forney Island, kind of little islet in between where the, the River Tyburn would have met the River Thames. And so really marshy, rubbish ground to build on. And Downing was a bit of a cheapskate. Uh, and so they built very low quality uh, foundations. So that's why the house keeps falling apart. And so he eventually gave it to Robert Walpole, who moved in in the 1730s. So needless to say, by the 1950s, it was in need of a, a little bit of repair. Most of the repairs up to that point had been a bit of a bodge. And obviously this was ten year, five or ten years after the Second World War. And where we're looking at now, what happened in this area? So just to decide, that's it's Treasury Green. This is where uh, one of several bombs that dropped very near to number 10. So this uh, is basically exploded. where, if you're looking at it, where you'd expect number 9 to be. And so that's where some of the bombs had fallen. And various amounts of damage had been done to the building. So just, just describe what sort of state the building was in by the 1950s. Well, not only due to the Second World War, that obviously did quite a lot of damage. And I think there's quite a lot of damage done to the roof as well by uh, air raid balloons just knocking about and the cables coming and taking the tiles off the roof, which is uh, slightly more embarrassing. You know, you, can, you can't do anything about bombing, but uh, that could probably have been avoided. <laughs> so by the 50s, it's in a bad state because of that, but it's also in a bad state because it was always in a bad state. Ever since the, the king gave it to uh, Robert Walpole and he had, a, he had a lot of work done on it, but then about 30 years later, they needed to do a lot more. Through most of the 1800s, there was no one living here. So where did Prime Ministers live then? They normally had better places to live. <laughs> this, was gen- this was genuinely, genuinely the thing. They normally had a slightly better homes of their own, so they didn't fancy it. And this also became quite a run-down area in the 1800s. There's a lot of uh, brothels and gin palaces around here, uh, area of kind of a bit of disrepute. So it's used as offices, but still it's, it's all falling apart. It's fallen apart basically for its entire history. And so by the 1950s, uh, it's in a seriously, seriously bad state and in need of serious repair. Some of the blogs that you've written in your role is researching residents. You described how the foundations were a mess. It turned out some of the foundations weren't, were just rubble. There weren't even proper bricks. There was dry rot, beetles. I mean, you talked about how when they had functions upstairs, staff had to sort of manoeuvre people around because the floors were so unstable, you couldn't have everyone stood in one corner. I mean, you've got some quite nice state rooms up there, which are where all the functions are, are generally held. They used to be the bedrooms of, the, of, of prime ministers and their wives. Since the Second World War, they've always been used as uh, function rooms. And they're the ones that we see on the TV when the prime minister might meet competition winners or hold a function for a charity and that sort of stuff. And it, there's, a, there's a sort of pinky coloured room and there's a yellow room, pillared, the pillared room. They're sort of big rooms, good for holding a function in, less good if the floor's going to give way at any moment. It wasn't just that those rooms, that the floor was possibly going to give way, it was also a serious worry that the cabinet room was going to fall through. And that was seriously strengthened in the Second World War because underneath it you've got the garden rooms at the back because actually the back is a whole another floor down. Yeah. So the ground floor on the back is not the same as the ground floor at the front. And so those garden rooms were used as almost an air raid shelter. So Winston Churchill sometimes would dine down there and so they reinforced it with uh, uh, timber but that was in a terrible state by the 50s as well and a bit worried that that floor is going to fall through as well. So, so if, it, if it wasn't people at a party falling through the floor, you could have had the entire cabinet drop it through the floor at the back. And the, the cabinet room is at the back of the building overlooking the garden. Yeah, basically the whole, the whole place uh, is, is in a very bad state and mostly because of the, uh, 
very low quality of the foundations in the first place so the walls are moving an awful lot so the walls come out of true and, and by when we're talking about uh, you had a, a carpenter employed permanently it was just in there just to fix things as and when they break so when door frames were moving out of shape so doors weren't open they had a carpenter there around the clock to basically sand things down rub, you know they'd adjust stuff <laughs> so doors had opened and closed Now, of course, the black door of number 10 is probably the most famous door in the world. It's been the scene of countless meetings between prime ministers with other world leaders, celebrities, and also, of course, every prime minister that's come and gone has passed through that door to be greeted or waved off by their officials behind. I remember the first time that I walked up down the street to go through the door of number 10. It felt an incredibly exciting moment for political journalists. In fact, having done it many times since, it's still exciting because of the history, because it is such an iconic image that black door of number 10. So Jack, here we are now, stood directly opposite the, the famous number 10 door, potentially one of the most famous doors in the world. Tell me about what happened to the front of the building and quite how basically out of line it had become. Well, it's about seven inches out of, out of true at the top, so uh, almost looking like it's going to fall over, I guess. You know. Fall towards us. Which, which, judging by, I mean, it would it would properly fill the street if that <laughs> if that came down. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't quite at the point it was about to fall over, but there was a serious risk that something was going to collapse, uh, and so there was the conversations that were being had within the uh, Ministry of Works were whether or not we just keep trying to sort of prop things up as and when, or if it's actually time to uh, to seriously rebuild. So then uh, it's Macmillan who walks through that famous door as Prime Minister, and basically the music stops with him. He's the one who has to make the decision about what to do about the building. And uh, like a lot of politicians, he's reluctant to be seen to be spending money, wants to get it put off. He sets up a commission. That's always a good way to, to put off a difficult decision. What happened then? Because it, it took quite a while for anybody to decide what to do. Well, yeah, so he put together a, a committee under the Earl of Crawford uh, to consider, basically to consider the options that the Minister, Ministry of Works had already come, to, come up with which were, you know, one, just keep doing it ad, ad hoc and hoping for the best, uh, eventually leading to a Prime Minister probably falling through one of the floors. Uh, option two, which is knock the whole thing down and start again. And option three, which was knock most of it down and rebuild it as it was and keep the kind of historic nature of the building, particularly the, the rooms around the Cabinet Room, so the kind of the most historic, the rooms that have the most historic value. Um, the, the, the Crawford Committee met about six times, but... It, the Earl of Crawford was pretty unavailable. So <laughs> I think that's basically why it took so long. It took about a year. The sensible thing to do would have been to knock it down and start again. But people were attached to it. It had been the seat of the Prime Minister off and on for hundreds of years. And although it's idiosyncratic, and if you, you know, when you go through the front door, it's a rabbit warren of corridors and small offices and, and all that, but people end up becoming attached to the very thing that they find annoying. I mean, ultimately, so the Ministry of Works, when they first reported, which is in 1955, so they, they told Churchill this needs to happen, they ultimately recommended knocking the whole thing down and starting again. They ultimately said, you know, that's a bit philistine, that's a bit terrible, <laughs> you know, that's a horrible thing to do. Uh, we're obsessed with our history in this country, you know, that's, that's how... That's how government works in this country. Yeah. It's, it's, it's for a convention. And the recommendation was made then. Actually, the decision was sort of made then. It took, it took three years before somebody could actually sort of bite the bullet and accept it. And Macmillan was really worried about sort of public perception, you know, about the idea that, oh, he's decided to be the Prime Minister who wants to spend loads of public money on his house. Yeah. And there's this debate, this conflict, if you like, between is it 
a house? Is it a, the residence of the Prime Minister? Is it the working office of the Prime Minister? And is it, as you were saying, the state rooms for functions and entertaining as part of the government? And that, I suppose it's chopped and changed a lot over time, but Macmillan was quite keen on the idea of it becoming more of a house and less of an office. Yeah, so he had, at one point he had the idea, and this is halfway through the process, he's already initiated it and it's already going on, um, he has the idea that he wants to kick basically everyone out except for the, the private secretaries. He wanted to kick almost everybody else out of number 10. The interesting thing was he basically did keep the layout exactly the same, even though people said... There were, you know, different people in small rooms and all that sort of stuff. Actually, it seemed to work, even though you wouldn't design an office from scratch like that. It seemed to work. The, the so-called garden girls in the semi-basement out the back liked being in there. They, you know, they, they got some new windows, but on the whole, it, it <laughs> stayed pretty much the same. And so even at this op- potential opportunity for a big makeover, they didn't really. It, it stayed largely the same. Absolutely. So Eriff, Raymond Eriff, who was the architect, he then went round the whole of number 10 and, and knocked on everyone's doors and said, are you okay with where you are? And everyone went, oh, I'm absolutely fine with where I am. Um, but I'll happily move, you know, if it's for the greater good. And in the end, he said, I'm not going to just move everyone just, just for the sake of it. Uh, everyone can basically stay where they are. Very, again, very British thing, isn't it? Isn't it? It's, it was all based on, on convention and what's happened before. And there was no sort of willingness, no appetite. Uh, to, to sort of radically rethink. Uh, what they did do is on the, the upper floors, they kind of uh, rejigged some of the office space. It made it make a little bit more sense. Uh, but they, again, they didn't radically overhaul the main bits of the building. In a way, of course, the building you work in, Churchill said the building shapers, that the, the building you're working in influences the way that you work. And, you know, if your proximity to power is important, if there's only a small office just outside the Prime Minister's office, only a certain number of people can sit there, and that, that, that does dictate, in a way, how the government ends up being run, just by the nature of the building. Absolutely. It completely controls uh, who has access. Uh, Bernard Donoghue's quite interested in uh, writing about this. He talks about when he set up the, uh, the policy unit and how important it was to get the right sort of access. So you're close to the Prime Minister, but you're also close to the private office, because the private office is kind of the traditional guardians of the, of the Prime Minister. So then it was in May 58, 1958, that the Cabinet finally took the decision that they were going to do something after all this dithering. But it was, wasn't until August 1960, so more than two years later, they finally moved out. I was quite struck reading some of what you'd written so they moved out in August by the following April there were already concerns about it overrunning and it's not going totally according to plan it's partly because it's partly because the uh, survey that they did Macmillan was not willing to move out of number 10 to get out of the way of the survey so the architects came in to try and check out the state of the building and they weren't able to properly investigate so as soon as work start they actually have a real look That's at the foundations. Start. And we've all had a builder like that who comes and starts, oh, this is all, this is worse than I thought. And inevitably, the price starts going up. So it started out at £464,000 in 1960s prices, ended up costing more than a million. Yes. And it overran by more than a year. Again, uh, in, not a good look. In part because of the problems they found, but also because of strikes. It probably wouldn't happen now if number 10 got some builders in. You probably wouldn't expect them to be down in tools. Explain what happened. Why were there strikes? Well, and there were strikes galore, actually. There was a plumber strike, but the, the best one was, was the uh, tea, tea break strike. There was a big issue where they changed the uh, working rules. And they said, you can't, well, you can have your tea breaks, but they won't be paid. And they tried to come up with what was called a free tea solution, uh, whereby you got a cup of tea, but you didn't get your break. And the builders were just not having that at all. Uh, so the strike, the strike went on quite a long time. I think over £200,000 of the uh, in, 
total cost was so estimated. A, f- a fifth of the cost was down to strikes. Yeah, I mean, obviously that's estimated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Know, but uh, yeah, it definitely made some difference. I mean, a, a, the majority of, of the rise was that they didn't realise how bad the building was until they got in there. As is always the case with builders. But Mullen, when he moved out, I mean, you can see why he'd be reluctant to move out because this is where prime ministers have been for yeah. years and years. Even in the time we've been here, there's been comings and goings. You feel like there's stuff going on. Mm. There were TV cameras sat up outside filming the front door. But he moved to Admiralty House just up Whitehall, where Cabinet, far from being held in a very small, or comparatively small, sort of rectangular room, ended up being held in a massive room. But that presented different challenges as well. He actually said that he found this cabinet room quite claustrophobic. So he was, he was quite impressed in some ways with uh, Admiralty House, where it's a lot more spacious. But one of the things that he came up with there was, was he pioneered this, uh, this new shaped cabinet table. <laughs> which he called a lozenge, which basically meant it was narrow at the end, so people at the far end... He wanted to be able to look people in the eye, in the eye. Uh, directly, yeah. The ministers would, would call it coffin-shaped, which is actually more accurate. <laughs> I can see why he wanted to avoid that. Uh, unfortunately, lozenge didn't stick, and coffin is the, uh, <laughs> it is still coffin is the metaphor that's stuck. And it's part of the reworking of it and moving some stuff into the, what's now the cabinet office building. There was also the, this famous door, the green baize door. Yes. Again, the power that comes with the geography of a building. Explain to me about the door. Well, so this is, I mean, there's a great episode of Yes Prime Minister about this called The Key, I think, which is about the idea of when you had the green baize door, which connects the adjacent cabinet office to number 10. It did require a key to get through, and the key was held by the principal private secretary, who's very close to the prime minister, and he's inside number 10, but is junior to the cabinet secretary so you had this weird dynamic and again it's just it's just parodied really well there was always a during the coalition years with david cameron and nick clegg and nick clegg's office was in uh the cabinet office building mm. so access to this door and this door being open so that he could get into number 10 and see the prime minister stuff that was all you know that was still being played out even now in a moment we'll be discussing what happens at number 12 downing street we'll be back after this short break Welcome back. You're listening to the Red Box Politics Podcast on the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. I've been speaking to Jack Brown, the researcher in residence, about the history of Downing Street. Still to come, how a cup of tea ground building work on Downing Street to a halt. So we're stood now directly opposite the door to number 11, where the Chancellor lives. And one of the things that's striking, you probably most people don't see from the street or from the TV, is that between number 10 and number 11, 
there's another door which has got railings across the front. It's essentially a fake door which doesn't go anywhere. And there's a few of these knocking about inside number 10. There's a, a fake door into the cabinet room as well. Doesn't open? No, it's just a historic legacy. <laughs> uh, so that, that's the sort of thing, presumably, where there was the debate about, you know, decorating and how much do you want to change it. If there's always been a door there, we keep the door there, to the point that uh, when we know if the architect was spending quite a lot of money on doors and that sort of thing to restore them far more than it would have cost us to put a new door in or whatever. I think by the end he was actually very disappointed with the end result. He spent, he wanted to spend a lot more money on the kind of the finishing parts, but partly due to these these strikes and partly due to the state of the building, and either depending on who you believe, either due to the builders or due to Erif being too demanding, it took way longer than expected, and they eventually put this final deadline on, and Erif wasn't really able to get the sort of high quality finishings that he wanted. He was really worried that people would see the end result and be like, you've spent a million pounds and it looks like this. Now this is interesting because you'd think the normal political decision would be, we don't want it to look all fancy, because you don't want the Prime Minister to be living in you know, the lap of luxury, who does he think he is? But equally, if you're going to spend a million pounds and it's going to look like a beige front room, well where's all the money gone? So you, and you exactly. want to see, you want exactly. to see some of the money being spent. Exactly, and, and Macmillan was of that traditional yeah. political view, he didn't want it to look expensive and that's where the, the conflict came in. I think Erif by the end was pretty wound up. Um, I think, by the way, that that's the reason why the, the zero on the number 10 is a bit off. So there's all sorts of different stories as to why it's slightly at an angle. Because it's not, it's not upright, it's slightly it, twisted. It's not upright, and that's been done because it's been done like that forever. But I think the reason why it happens is just because of a, an error when they're painting it, just in a rush. Oh, I see, that's a, that's, a, that's a good bit of trivia. Now where we're looking here, it's, you can really see how much bigger number 10 is than number 11, just from the front. Partly because the front, the ground floor of number 11 is painted cream, so it sort of stands out. But actually, number 10 behind the wall has been eating into number 11 territorially as well for a long time, to the point that the, the sort of number 10's domain also stretches all the way into number 12 as well. Alistair Campbell famously seized, kicked out the whips and seized it for the press office. So this begins with, with the era of revamp. So the upper floors, the uh, number 10 was extended a little bit into to number 11. I'm also told that in between Geoffrey Howe and Nigel Lawson being Chancellor, Thatcher had uh, some members of her private office slightly extend even further uh, by moving the barricades. So you go up the stairs and all of a sudden you go, oh, OK, number 11 ends here. Just extended number 10 just a little bit further. <laughs> well, there's a terrific story. It's got nothing to do with number 10, but about how after a reshuffle, a new minister went to their predecessor and said, how on earth did you cope with your special advisors being in a different room and the door was blocked. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, the, the room that the special advisors are in next door, the sofa across it, why did you do that? Why did you not want to have access to your special advisors? And they said, well, that door was always open. And during the course of the reshuffle, the civil servants had pushed the sofa across the door in the hope that, of persuading the new minister that that was, that was how it had always been. They didn't really need to see their special advisors. But I suppose it goes back to the whole idea of, you know, the layout and proximity Massive. to power and all that. There's a similar, a similar thing when um, Marcia Williams gets in in the room uh, next to the cabinet room. So at one end you've got the private secretaries and at the other end of the room you've got uh, the political and personal secretary, which is Marcia Williams. And her door opened directly into the cabinet room. And then after her reign of extreme controversy, they always kept that door locked as a kind of a symbol to kind of make the private office reassured. 
that the political side wasn't trying to intrude on the Prime Minister. Now, um, if we look down to the left, there's a sort of red brick building, which actually really is the one you can see best from the street if you're mm. a tourist who comes down the street. It's a red brick building. It's got a door. It's not quite as fancy as the 10 and 11. It was a black door with the number 12 on them. But this, again, is a bit of a higgledy-piggledy mess. What's going on with number 12? Well, so number 12 was rebuilt by Erif as well. Uh, number 12 had burned down over 100 years before, I think. And it had burned down to just one single storey. Uh, so Erif decided to build it back all the way up to, to the same height as all the other buildings. And that allowed the chancel to be pushed out a little bit and number 10 to push out a little bit into number 11. So, so it becomes a kind of an extension. And it's sort of interesting because one of the things we've seen politically since the refurb has happened is the massive influx of special advisors and political appointees which is eaten into you know and they all want desks and they all want to be close to to what's going on and so the fact that there is there is still a finite amount of space inside and the struggle that they have mm. to try and uh, make that work and particularly during the coalition where for every Tory there was a Lib Dem you know wanting a seat close to what's going on sure but I mean you say massive influx and I mean in kind of historical terms I guess you, yeah. you are kind of correct still a very very small amount yeah, uh, the the amount of people that work directly around the prime minister compared to other countries is tiny. And actually, if you look at uh, these essentially three buildings and compare it to say the White House, <laughs> which serves a similar job, it's got some amazing state rooms, far more than they're in uh, Downing Street, but also a, ho- a massive office. You know, the, the, where the commander in chief runs a world superpower from. Th- this, when you go in, does feel more like a house to a large extent. What's interesting is how over time, so when Walpole first moved in, the cabinet room was, was designated my lord's study and that was a kind of a, an office room and there was a room next to it that was a, a secretary's room as well but the rest even of the ground floor was basically a domestic building and, and so over time how that domestic function has been pushed up and up and out and got smaller and smaller and the rest of the, the office space has increased. Uh, it's just interesting how that's happened over time. Just referring to how it is basically like a house, uh, the front door's just been open for Larry the cat to go in, uh, <laughs> roaming around. I'm not, I'm not sure the Prime Minister is a huge fan of Larry the cat, but he's, he's still allowed to come and go as he pleases. But he hasn't got a cat fat, unfortunately. Presumably that would require English heritage and all sorts of people to start. I think it would be uproar, yeah. <laughs> There'd be more than a walking zero on the front door. But it does mean that somebody has to be... So somebody stands inside and watches the security camera to open the door and shut the door because there is no, no key and no handle on the outside. And one of the most... And that's why you sometimes see the slightly embarrassing moment where somebody walks up to the door and the door doesn't open. I think sometimes it happens to Boris Johnson quite a lot because he tends to come from the left... Uh, because he's coming via the foreign office and they, they don't see him on the camera uh, walking up the street like other people and so he ends up having to bang on the door uh, and uh, wait for it to open. Whereas Larry gets A1 star A- treatment. A1, so you don't want to cross Larry. It'll make much more mess than Boris would. Just finally, all this work was done, moved back in after much controversy, overspending, overrunning and everything you'd expect from a building project. In only a couple of years, they discovered that actually there were even more problems. <laughs> it's, yeah. And they had, to, they, had to, they had to spend even more money. As you know, anybody who's had any sort of DIY or work done 
those, you know, it's a never-ending. Wilson, it was under Harold Wilson they first found the, the dry rot in the staterooms and they were absolutely gutted because it's so embarrassing that the government spent, even though it wasn't his government, it was still the government that spent public money on it. It's partly to do with, with rushing it again. It's, it's to do with things overrunning and, um, and having this real pressure. We've got to get things finished. And so they hadn't found some, some of the cases of dry rot. There's also a bit of an argument as to whether or not uh, they burst a pipe by accident whilst they were doing, whilst the builders were in and they didn't sort of tell anyone, and then it turned into dry rot. And it's interesting, we're talking about this and what happened six years ago, just up the road, there's a, exactly the same debate going on about what's there in Parliament. Do they move out? Do they try and bodge it while they're there? Nobody wants to spend the money. They have, in the past month or so, uh, finally agreed they are going to move out, because I think they recognise that trying to stay and bodge it around them is going to be a problem. But nobody wants to be the one who, who sits down and writes this massive cheque for... Uh, for what is essentially spending on their own uh, their own offices. Well, it's exactly the same situation here. I mean, you know, Macmillan was was the one who had to in the end, but nobody really wanted to move out. Uh, John Major also had to move out to Edinburgh House uh, when they were repairing after the mortar attack, the IRA mortar attack in uh, 1991. And that was sort of directly the other side of the building from where we are. Yes. Because it landed in the garden. Landed in the garden during cabinet. Yeah. Uh, when they were talking about about the war, just after the prime minister said the word bomb, apparently. Uh, which is a bit absolutely crazy. And yeah, that caused loads of damage, and they use it as an opportunity to do a bit of refurb as well. Uh, if you're fortunate enough to uh, be Prime Minister at the point where the building needs some refurbishment, you can generally shape it a little bit. Um, but unfortunately, Major, because he's moved out to Admiralty House, doesn't get that opportunity. <laughs> and so, just finally, standing uh, looking at the fun, it's sort of strangely quite British, because it's sort of stately but not too OTT. Mm -hmm. Just explain why the front is black, because there aren't that many sort of houses in London now that would be that colour. They thought that the building was originally painted black, they found it was just covered in soot and grime and dirt. Uh, obviously this used to be a normal road, you could go up and down this road, so I think it's a combination of pollution, soot, you know, there's a lot of coal fires burning. I think it looks good how it is now actually, but it wasn't, it wasn't intended to be that way. But in a classic British way, if people think that's how it's always been, they did the building work to stop the front of the building falling down, and then they painted it black to replace the soot that they'd accidentally brushed <laughs> off. And presumably you would say, having spent a year digging around in this building, that restoring it rather than knocking it down was the right thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I started off leaning towards the other side a little bit, actually. The idea that, you know, it's just, it's just always been like that and therefore we should uh, keep things the same. It's not sort of where I'm fr from sort of ideologically normally, but uh, I've absolutely fallen in love with it. It's, his the, the history is, is really, really important, I think. And you can feel it as you walk in. And I think that's that kind of palpable sense of huge decisions have been made here. I think that is quite influential and I think that, that does make a difference to the conduct of the Premiership today and going forward. And lots of people, you know, Thatcher talked about it was one of the most precious crown jewels and she was just a sort of uh, a guardian of it during the time she was in number 10. Mm. And you do get that sense of all Prime Ministers feeling that sort of sense of responsibility. And I know, and I've been coming up and down the street for 10, 12 years, and it's exciting every time you come up here because you know the history that's gone on. And particularly once you go inside and that famous staircase with all the mm. photos, that's, that's the most ultimate reminder of you are but one of these people in history and enjoy your time while you're here because the building will, will still be here long after you're gone. Yes, and you have no idea when exactly you will be kicked out. That's one of the things. I think that staircase, it's wonderful history, but it's also a sort of reminder that, yeah, your time is short. 
Gentlemen, we're leaving Downing Street for the last time after 11 and a half wonderful years. When the curtain falls, it's time to get off the stage. And I wish everyone, friend or foe, well. And that is that, the end. Only those who have held the office of Prime Minister can understand the full weight of its responsibilities and its great capacity for good. And as we leave for the last time, my only wish is continued success for this great country that I love so very much. Thank you. My thanks to Jack Brown for taking us through the history of this extraordinary building. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast on your Android device and sign up to my morning email briefing. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.